This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur, the last one of 2023. Adam Wilde, how are you? Alan, I'm festive. I'm excited. Uh, I'm looking back on, a, I think, a pretty solid year for AP, wouldn't you say? I would say so. We've had a couple of, uh, I think, fascinating guests, some great conversation, Mm -hmm. uh, learn a little, laugh a lot, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Absolutely. What are the plans for the holidays? Uh, Plans for the holidays. Tomorrow, me and my family, both of my kids are home from university. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are flying to Seattle to be with our in-laws Mm-hmm. Uh, we go every year and okay. we usually go every year from the 21st or 22nd until the 26th. And usually around that time, I bug out to the world juniors and my family uh, flies home. Um, my son is turning 21 on the 24th of December. He's a new, uh, Christmas Eve baby. Okay. Uh, and he's going to be able to have his first legal drink on the uh, night of the 24th. Uh, Crazy to believe he's uh, finishing up his third year of university and he's just now going to be able to legally drink in the United States. And well, I'm uh, just going to say, and nobody drinks underage at a Southern California university, do they? Well, he goes to a university in Washington, D.C. Oh, he's D.C., right, 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 right. right. Okay, yes. My daughter drinks at D.C. either. (laughs) Well, exactly, exactly. My daughter is in her second year at Berkeley. Right, that's the one. And and she's uh, studying film and English. Um, She's still a couple years away from 21. But anyways, my son is also um, flying over to Rome uh, early January to do a semester in Rome. And uh, he's really excited about that. A bunch of his very close friends are doing semesters abroad all over Europe, Madrid, Barcelona, um, London, Ireland. And they have all these plans to get together on different European cities. I'm actually really jealous of uh, of his next five months. It sounds Sounds like it's going to be amazing. Uh, they've got St. Patrick's Day in in, in Ireland oh circled God. on their uh, calendar. You know, they're going to do, you know, really cool stuff like that. So and, um, and you'll and, be able to do that for like a hundred bucks. Like it, the flights <laughs> within Europe are they're nothing, right? They're 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 literally under a hundred bucks and uh, hotels are pretty cheap. Um if you're going, you know, two star, three star, uh, and, uh, and, and it's, it's awesome. And then I'm flying to Gothenburg, um, on the 27th to be over in Sweden for the world juniors. And you love that, don't you? World junior time every year is, it's an awesome time. It's one of those times like the draft where everybody kind of gets together in the hockey world. You see the same people every year, people involved in um, hockey federations from different countries. Um, the players are usually there, you know, one or two years, you know, usually two years. They, they have a run there. Um, so it's the players and their families where you're in some different city um, around Christmas time, New Year's, New Year's Eve, you know, New Year's Day, where you're all together. Um, a lot of hockey media 
um, a lot of people involved in the in the, uh, the scouting community. Almost the entire scouting community is over there, and no one really understands how hard these guys work. And I've had some people make comments to me about how oh NHL scouts it's a cushy job, you know you how hard is it to go watch hockey games uh, oh. uh, all day? No one understands what these scouts go through driving through snowstorms, rainstorms, hundreds of miles, getting on planes and flying and then driving, uh, staying in um, bad motels, eating bad food, Mm -hmm. um, um, watching games, writing reports. I mean, I know scouts. I see them on the road. I'm like, where have you been all day? Well, I've been in my room doing reports for six, seven hours on their laptops. I mean, they work hard. They may be the most unsung heroes of the entire hockey business, and they're the lowest paid. I'm just going to say the pay is not good. Well, it's all relative, I think, to whether you're part-time, full-time, how many years you have in the business, whether you're a uh, chief amateur scout or just an amateur scout. There is a scale, but generally, they're the lowest paid on the hockey or totem pole. And, uh, and, and really, uh, their roles are underrated, uh, given, um, what they bring in value to the organization, um, not just around the draft, but many times the games that they're scouting and the reports that they're writing are referred to two, three, four years later. Um, if a team is looking to acquire a player, they will go back and read all the reports done on players all the way back to, to their NHL draft year. So there's a, um, a body of work that they contribute to that really people don't know about. Nobody ever hears about it. But in my mind, NHL scouts are the unsung heroes of, of hockey teams and don't get the credit they deserve. Do you, um, as an agent, because I think as an agent, and I've never actually asked you this question, but as an agent, you kind of have to be a scout too, right? Because you have to have an idea of, 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 where a player's trajectory is. Do you talk to the scouts and say, Hey, what's your estimation? Like does, does that, do, does an agent and a scout, do they ever cross paths? Oh yeah. And there's lots of um, information um, that um, is shared and goes back and forth 100%. But with players and families now selecting agents at 14 and 15 years of age, Really, that's where a agency is dedicated to um, identifying the top talent in every region of the world. So it's almost like we have uh, amazing partners in Czech Republic, uh, partners in Sweden, partners in Germany, partners all over Europe um, that work closely with us and we're identifying the best players at 15 NHL scouts um, may have a read on a few of the best underage players one year before their NHL draft, you know, starting around their U 17 years. But for the most part, 
They're all focused on the NHL draft eligible players and maybe some players that have slipped through the cracks that are now on their radar as a 19-year-old, which is becoming more and more prevalent um, Mm -hmm. in the NHL draft these days. But uh, you talk to an NHL scout about a 15 or 16-year-old, and it's they, they have no idea who these players are. They haven't seen them. There's no coverage on them. So uh, really what we're doing, I think, is a, is a more difficult job in identifying players at 14 and 15 versus identifying them at 17, 18, or 19. Wow. That is a, uh, yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, that is so, so, and I, you know, I don't want to dive too deep because we've got a lot to get to. We've got a lot to get to, but I did want to ask, is there anything that sticks out to you? Not obviously hockey is hockey and, and it's pretty ubiquitous. You can pick out the best players. Is there anything that you look for in a 14 or a 15 year old personality wise? Do you go, that one's different. That one's special. A hundred percent. I see um, players who have a certain element of swagger okay. and, um, and, and you see it even at 15 um, where you're like, wow, th- this young man has, has that certain it that everyone tries to identify. It is not quantifiable. You're not going to find it in analytics. You're not going to find it in any other realm except once you peel the onion a little bit and start understanding a player's makeup and their level of um, willingness to face and overcome adversity and um, the level of determination and work ethic they have. Um, y- you know, I hear sometimes 15-year-olds and certain players acquire reputation of being you know, really good players having a, a lazy streak to them. And you sort of follow how it plays out when they're 18 and 19 and they've fallen off the radar. And you start trying to understand why at 15, they may have been amongst the best of the best. And then you see others who might not be in that top echelon, but might be in the middle group of mm-hmm. people that you're sort of focusing on and interested in. And at 17 and 18, they're right at the very top. And you start understanding, why did this happen? And a lot of it has to do with um, commitment, um, uh, a willingness to sacrifice, um, just a understanding of of the world and their place in it. Uh, by way of the hockey world at that time and being able to push themselves into the next level and the next level and the next level. I find it fascinating. It's a fascinating process when you're starting to identify players at 15 and start following them as they progress. Um, by the time a player is 18 and finally on the NHL scouts radar, the hockey scouting community, media uh, uh, radar, the people who are like the draft prognosticators and draft rankings. And you see these players finally talked about, well, I've had a 
good idea of who these players are and probably had meetings with them and their families and have been following them closely already for three years. Wow. It must be um, when you when you do represent somebody that young, it must be fun to see. Like, I'm going to use David and Adam Yurchek as an example here. But but when when David Yurchek, when when the hype started to build around him and it was oh, it's starting to look like he's going to go top 10, the, the pride you must feel as an agent must be pretty cool. Oh, sure. And, oh, sure. And, you know, and, and, and you know, David's got a, a, an amazing sense of humor. Yes. And uh, he one time said to me, we were, we were sitting in Montreal before the draft, uh, maybe a day or two. We're sitting in a hotel uh, lobby. David had an interview with an NHL team, and we're sitting there waiting for uh, one of the scouts to come out and go get him. And David looks at me and he says, Alan, you know the best thing about me? the best thing. I'm like, what, David? He goes, my brother is better than me. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. We're going to see Adam there, right? He's going to be at the World Juniors, is he not? Adam uh, is, is supposed to be at the World Juniors with the Czech team. He's um, with them now uh, in their training camp. Um, and I'll be seeing him and his family over in uh, Gothenburg. Hey, listen, I'm always rooting for a guy named Adam. Always. Yeah, so, me too. Uh, <laughs> so, so listen, uh, listen, th there's no way, there's no easy way to get into this. I mean, I guess it is super easy. It's your client, David Perron. Uh, there was a, an incident with Artem Zub of the Ottawa Senators. David was suspended for six games. Alan, on Twitter, you called it a kangaroo court, the way that the, the Department of Player Safety handles these situations. Um, and we've had David on this show. And, you know, this is a guy with no priors. He's had no suspensions. And as far as I know, no fines. No, um, one fine. One fine. One fine. Uh, so not, not a guy with a big track record here. 17 and years, 17 years in the NHL uh, between regular season and playoff, 1,185 regular season games mm -hmm. and nothing um, on a disciplinary side, except one fine. And then he obviously gets six games for the cross check. Now, yep. um, you know, there are, there are many questions every time the Department of Player Safety thing comes up. I'm thinking about, and the thing we've been talking about on the Steve Dangle podcast a lot is, you, I'm sure you saw the Nick Cousins hit on Eric Branson. Yep. And Eric Branson saying after, I'm just glad my extremities still work. And the fact that there was no call in the play and then there was no suspension afterwards for NHL fans like myself. There's a lot of like, where's the bar here? What what is OK? That action equals what? And we never can guess. So I know that you've now gone through the process. And if I'm if I'm OK to say this, we can always edit this out. Uh, yesterday, you were in New York for an appeal with Gary Bettman, Bill Daly. Um, and the Department of Player Safety to get these games reduced. Um, kind of wanted to un understand how that process works and then kind of get into your opinion of it and whether it does work. Okay. So I, I think that one of the things people who follow the sport are not very well versed in is what happens in a uh, department of what I call the Department of Player Suspensions, the media PR department of the National Hockey League on the discipline side? What happens um, in one of their so-called hearings? So first, 
uh, level of uh, understanding is whether it's an in-person hearing where mm-hmm. where DPS offers the player the option of having an in-person hearing or not. Okay. And there's something very telling in that. Um, if an in-person is not offered to the player, the maximum suspension that they can levy against the player is five games. If there is an in-person offered, it gives them the right to suspend greater than five games. Right. Okay. So um, I was watching the game. Uh, I saw the hit uh, to Dylan Larkin. I saw David's response in real time. I saw a, a game misconduct for intent to injure um, against David. He's out of the game um, right away. He and I are talking and there is a sense that this is going to end up in a hearing. What I was personally shocked about and many other people were whether shocked is the right word or just very surprised that's in the eye of the beholder but dps offered david uh an in-person hearing Mm -hmm. which means that the possibility of getting more than five games was on the radar before um knowing that it was uh, that an in-person was being offered in my mind um, knowing the body of prior suspensions the precedents that have been set for similar acts on the ice I'm thinking two or three games yeah and the, I think like Matthews Darlene is a good one right from the outdoor game in Hamilton where Matthews cross-checked Rasmus Darlene Yes, and there's a, a Malkin cross-check, uh, which involved an injury. The, the key thing here is um, Zub was not injured. Concussion spotters did not pull him from the game. Mm-hmm. And, and it was all understood, and he played the next shift. Mm-hmm. Even though there was a four-minute, five-minute delay in the game while everything got sorted out and and Larkin uh, was able to leave the ice. Um, uh, when play resumed, Zoo was taking a regular shift, finished the game, um, practiced the next day, and and it's undisputed that there was no injury on the play, thankfully. You know, very thankfully, no injury on the play. And a number of the other suspensions that are on the books historically uh, between two and four games, many of them involve an injury. Mm-hmm. And and according to the guidelines that um, player suspensions use, um, usually when there's an injury, there's added games to the suspension for that. Mm-hmm. And... Rightly so. So our initial thoughts were this was going to be two or three games. When I heard it was an in-person, uh, 
like I said, I was shocked. Mm-hmm. Other people were very surprised. And we're trying to figure out where this is coming from. And uh, I, I changed my thinking, and I'm thinking, okay, this is probably now two is out of the question. You know, this is probably going to end up three. You know, if, if for whatever reason um, uh, the hearing doesn't go well and, 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 and George and the people at player suspensions think it should be, you know, four max, four max, right? And I don't think four is even justified. Um, you know, it's a, and, and David Perron is, is, has never advocated for zero games. He's the first one to admit his stick got high on him. Um, the optics of the cross check are not good. And he certainly, the, the act is worthy of a suspension, but a suspension um, consistent with other similar cross checks in recent history that have gone through player suspensions and are worth two or three games of suspension. Uh, and, and that's where our thinking was. So now I get this question a lot. People don't know. What is the hearing like? So the first thing is, even though David is offered, was offered in person, uh, he elected, as he's allowed to do, to do the hearing by Zoom and not get on a plane and fly to New York for an in-person. If he wanted to, he could have elected the in-person. Um, the general feeling is with the pandemic, so many hearings have been done over Zoom in the last three years that um, it's actually quite rare for a player now offered in person to take them up on it and go in. And almost always, even though the in-person is offered, the hearing is on Zoom. So let's peel back the curtain a little and give everybody insight into the hearing. The hearing, uh, you, you sign into Zoom. Mm-hmm. Hearing begins. Who's on the call? You have George Paros leading the call. He's in a conference room. You see him sitting at the, at the head of the table. He's got various people on both sides of him from his department. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm on the call. Mm-hmm. Uh, the player is on the call. The general manager is on the call. And various people from the NHLPA, um, the associate councils, and people working at the PA are on the uh, call as well. And George starts off reading a script saying that we're here for uh, a disciplinary proceeding pursuant to an event that occurred in the game. And then he plays the video. And then on the screen, you see the video, different angles of the incident. And then he says, let's talk about people's role here. The general manager is able to speak and uh, talk about uh, the incident. I then want to hear from the player directly 
about um, his um, uh, opinion and 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 observations of what happened and and give an explanation. Uh, the agent's role is limited to um, providing character evidence on a player's uh, previous discipline history or lack thereof. And that's really the agent's role in the hearing. We are not a defense attorney. Mm -hmm. We are not uh, really, uh, it's not our role to defend the player. Uh, the, the GM has a prominent role in doing that. If he feels it's appropriate, the player, the NHLPA's role on the call is to uh, see to it that the uh, provisions that exist in the CBA on behalf of a member of their union is respected and the player's rights are upheld and that they're there more from a 35,000 feet perspective that this hearing is conducted in accordance with the CBA. Mm -hmm. and that's sort of everybody's role on the call. So the general manager starts and, uh, uh, he goes through uh, the uh, event or the act on the ice and talks about how he sees it. And um, usually a GM will talk for between five and 10 minutes. And then the player has an opportunity to explain himself, what happened, how it happened, why it happened, what he did, what his intent was whether there was an intent to do something or not, whether it was uh, coincidental or accidental to what occurred. Is it a hockey player or not a hockey play? And all the different factors that could come in the play. And then they turn to the agent who's allowed to then give his character reference or, or character evidence on the player. And um, in a situation where a player um, has never been suspended before. Uh, you can talk about how many games the player has played in the league, um, how the player has never been suspended, maybe give a little insight background into the player's career and history um, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then the NHLPA um, is given an opportunity to speak with regard to uh, making sure that all of the provisions of the CBA are respected and then George says at the end, okay, thank you very much, everybody. Um, you know, you can expect my decision later today or tomorrow morning. He gives a little bit of a time frame. And then DPS, uh, Department of Player Suspensions, goes off and, and they do their thing. Now, here's what people don't know that they, they likely find fascinating. There is now... An incredible effort on behalf of DPS. First, while George is mulling over how many games to give, if any, if it's indicated there is going to be a suspension, there is a group of video coordinators who are starting to put the suspension video together. And they are putting clips together. They're recording voiceovers and they prepare a script. And then when George lets them know how many games he's 
uh, uh, suspending. There's more voiceover done. And then they take this suspension video and distribute it to everybody within the department. And then they by email, everybody's watching it. They make comments. I don't like this word. Delete this word. They delete a word. Um, you know what? This video, I don't like this view. Um, take that view out. Put this view in. Um, uh you know, the, 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 the video lingers a little bit too long on a player on the ice and that's not good optics. Get that out. And there's literally, um, at times 40 or 50 messages going back and forth between all of them arguing or d debating between each other. You know, is it ready for release? Um, what do you think? Yes, I like it. Um, no, I think you should make this change. Yes, this is great. Take this clip out. Add this word. All the, I mean, it, it, it's amazing to see how this <clears throat> happens. And that's part of the reason why I say this is a media PR exercise. And these suspension videos, uh, make no mistake, every single word that is in the final video has been debated. Uh, they've gone over it uh, over and over again mm -hmm. with an eye towards um, how does it make the league look? Um, um, how does it make them look? Uh, so that's the process. That's the process. And that's and just then, the first part of it. And that's just the first part of it. So in this situation, uh, bam, Six games. Mm -hmm. um, everybody was like, where did this come from? There, and, and, and I'll tell you why. There are no precedents. There are no cross-checks like this that justify, based on previous event and suspension, six games. It doesn't exist. Where is it? And and what um, my biggest beef has been uh, with this department, and I think many other people, um, general managers, I know many general managers are very, very unhappy with George. NHL owners, I mean, we had one NHL owner release a public statement calling George unfit for his job. Unfit. Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Mm -hmm. There is no transparency. There is no consistency. And the one thing you hear from players over and over and over again is, I don't know on any given day, what is suspendable and what's not. I just don't know. No one knows. No. Because, because you know, everything it, it should be, okay, we know if you do this, you will be suspended X games. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you will be suspended Y games. If you do this, 
you will be, and everybody then will know here is if you do this, this is what you can expect. And what is the reality here? The reality here is on any given Saturday night, I'm following six games, seven games at a time. I'm watching hits. I'm watching um, uh, boards, uh, boarding. I'm watching um, uh, uh, charging. I'm watching slashes. And I, I'm like, is it suspendable? Mm-hmm. Is there going to be hearing here? I don't know. Sometimes no penalty is called on the play. Sometimes it's a, it, it's a major penalty. And even after video review, they keep it as a major penalty. And the consistency and the predictability uh, from the on-ice officials all the way to what you can expect from uh, George and the kangaroo court is, I mean, nobody, nobody knows. Nobody knows. What's the advantage and, for the NHL for that, by the way? That's what we keep can, asking on the Steve Dangle podcast. What's the, the advantage? The, Everything around the NHL, uh, NHL New York, the NHL head office, from Gary on down, is about one thing, maintaining total control over everything they do and maintaining control over the players. So there can be no seeding of power and control. And by, you know, Gary's infinite wisdom turning this all over to the violent gentleman, you know, who is now several years in charge of, of player suspensions and the way that he's decided to run it. You know, there's just, there is no consistency. It's a fact. There is no transparency. No one knows. Players don't know what is suspendable and what isn't. And until we get to the level of understanding what you can do and can't do, uh, and then being able to say, okay, if you do X, expect this number of games, which is only fair. You know, very good players um, are still able to commit in the heat of the moment a bad act on the ice doesn't make them a bad guy. It doesn't make them a bad person. That's the nature of the game we live in and uh, we operate in. And you hope uh, that at least there would be some predictability uh, to the process. And there isn't. So, so we've got that. And, and so you get six games. There's shock. And then you, you know, obviously you were tweeting about it, Alan, but then there's the appeal process. Now, what's interesting about the NHL appeals process, and I remember this with, I think it was Dennis Weidman with the, with the Flames when he hit one of the refs and he got, was it 10, 20 games? Um, and, you know, at the time, and I hope I got that name right, um, at the time, I, I realized for the first time that unlike Major League Baseball, where if you appeal a suspension, you get to keep playing until the final verdict. In the NHL, uh, they you don't play. Doesn't it's literally like I, you're we're acting like you're guilty, and you can you can appeal this, and you'll get your money back, but you'll never get to play those games. Well, it depends. 
Um, but but for the most part, you're 100 percent right. Um, the player from the moment um, DPS notices the team, the player, the NHLPA, and the media that there's going to be a hearing, the player is suspended indefinitely mm. from that very moment. So that's why it's important to have the hearing as soon as possible. And then after the hearing, whether the suspension is two games, three games, no games, one game, four games, whatever it is, um, then the player is suspended that number of games. But in the interim, the moment the hearing is noticed, whether in person or not, the player is suspended indefinitely until resolution by (coughs) DPS. Okay. So – uh, am, am I okay? I'm, I'm not. Whatever it is, I'm going to stop t- jumping all over myself. You went into the appeals process yesterday. Yeah, I'm uh, just back from uh, New York City at the NHL uh, head office. At the NHL head offices, we had uh, the way the CBA operates with respect to appeals. Um, whether a player was suspended uh, less than six games or more than six games. If he wishes to appeal a suspension, it goes first to a appeal before Gary Bettman as the judge. So basically, we had a hearing yesterday in New York in a in their their big conference room with Gary Bettman sitting at the head of the table inside the conference room as the judge in this appeal. And. Um, and I'm sure that wasn't awkward for either of you. No, not at all. I have, uh, <laughs> not at all. Sorry, sorry. Continue. I didn't. Yeah, no problem. Um, <laughs> and if Gary um, decides to reduce the suspension by just one game, that's the end of the matter, and the case is closed because you cannot appeal Gary to a neutral arbitrator, which is the final level of appeal, unless the suspension is for at least six games. So as it stands now, David Perron is suspended for six games. If we go to uh, Gary and we chose to do that, we've had the hearing. We're waiting for his decision. If he upholds the suspension at six games, we can then take his uh, opinion and ruling, and we can appeal that to a neutral arbitrator. Okay. Okay. If Gary reduces it by just one game, the suspension is final. It would be five games and that's it. Okay. So how would you say the hearing went and how much detail can you get into? I'm not, I'm not going to get into any of that right now, especially okay. as we're waiting for uh, a ruling. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, I, what I will say is that the, um, the, the process um, in having the commissioner uh, who appoints George Paros as the head of player safety, player suspensions, and to have Gary as the appellate judge, uh, to me, is nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. 
And I think that there should be a permanent arbitrator in place like there is if there is a suspension greater than six games, and it should be expedited. Mm -hmm. There is not, not any rocket science to these cases. They can be prepared and they can be uh, presented uh, very quickly. So here's the reality of the situation. Tonight, as we're recording this, so today is, let me get my day straight here because of all the flying I've done. 20th. Today, today is the 20th. Today is Wednesday, the 20th. As we are recording this right now, game six is tonight. If we don't get a ruling by Gary before game time tonight, even if the neutral arbitrator a week or two down the road reduces Gary's ruling by a game or two, it could go down to four games, um, which would probably be a good a just result here. Um, it won't impact at all the fact that David would have missed six games and some of those games would have been reversed on appeal. Mm-hmm. How does that make <clears throat> any fucking sense at all nothing where you're suspending a player for six games it gets reduced for four games but oh you are shit out of luck because the six games you've already missed them so basically all you're then fighting about is the return of the player's salary for the games that he's been suspended um that's the players want to play and 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 You've got to have a system in place. You have to, where the player can get to an arbitrator and have that arbitrator rule where if there is an inclination to reduce a suspension, it can be reduced and the player can jump back into the games and not miss games that he should not be missing uh, because of a suspension reduction. From the outside, Alan, it seems like there's a bit of a conflict of interest when the person that Gary and... Gary Bettman and Bill Daly hired to be the head of uh, the Department of Player Suspension or to player player safety, Um, you know, in the appeals process and the first leg of the appeals process, he's a direct hire of these guys. So for him to go back on what his own department that he has hired and staffed himself, for him to go against them, there doesn't seem to be a lot of good for Gary if you were to do that. It seems like there's a conflict of interest. Why would he go against his own people? Um, and that's sort of how you have to look at this. Uh, why hasn't this come up in CBA negotiations? I'm surprised that the PA is not a little bit more advanced on this. This this is the system seems to be quite antiquated. It is, and I think it was a uh, v- very big um, incremental gain in the area when the whole concept of a neutral arbitrator was introduced for any suspension over six games, six or more. And um, that was, so so what you then saw was a number of uh, suspensions always coming in less than six because the league never wanted to expose any of their decisions to a neutral arbitrator 
in the uh, fear is they don't want scrutiny and they don't want to be reversed or reduced. Right. They just mm-hmm. don't want that to happen. So uh, again, um, this is a broken, this is a broken system. And um, the closer you get to peeking behind the window and being involved in the process, you realize what a joke of a process it really is. I am, uh, I'm curious, and I don't know if you'll speculate, but I'm curious as to why, David, why six games? Do you have any again, thoughts I, on why I, it would again, do that? I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts on that, Adam, and, and I think, <laughs> uh, I know you're yeah. shocked to hear that. Blown away. And I, and I, and I think until, until the case is final, um, uh, I, I should not be commenting on that, uh, because there's, if, if Gary, uh, does not reduce the suspension, uh, we are going to appeal this, uh, to the neutral arbitrator. And let's leave that process to run its course. Once we have uh, a decision, if it ever gets that far before the neutral, we can then revisit that question, you and I, on a later episode, and I'll be much more willing to discuss my uh, feelings on what the underlying factors were and what happened behind the scenes here. Okay. I think that's fair. Um, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. Um, I, I can imagine that for David, who is an extremely competitive person um, and pretty intense on the ice, relaxed off the ice from from what I gather and from what we've talked about and interviewing him. Um, I, I imagine this has been a pretty tough process for him. Um, of course. Um, yet at the same time, um, I couldn't be uh, more proud of David uh, than I was yesterday. And I have to leave it at that. But I just thought that David handled himself yesterday um, with grace and confidence. And um, the strength of his character really came out yesterday. And uh, I was... uh, I was I was proud mm-hmm. and I was um, watching uh, him mm-hmm. uh, thought that there were many people in the room uh, impressed with what he had to say. OK, I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, <clears throat> Alan, there's a couple other topics we're going to hit. And obviously we're. um this was a meteor topic, so we may not get to all of them, but we can always save these for the new year. But, you know, one of the stories of the early season so far has been teams that have shockingly underperformed. I think uh, the Edmonton Oilers are certainly among them where, you know, they had a terrible start. Woodcroft gets unfortunately fired. Knobloch takes over. They go on an eight game win streak. Another less surprising one, but I think very surprising to their fan base is the Ottawa Senators. Um, lots of talent on paper. Um, and, and, and really should have taken a step forward by now. Um, they just lost their head coach as well and replaced them with Jacques Martin. Um, 
I wanted to talk to you about a, a little bit about this because there's been a lot of coaches on the hot seat and been a lot of conversations about uh, strategy and and especially the analytics debate and how that plays into it. Um, I wanted to to get your opinion as an agent on why teams that should do well. Let's take the Edmonton Oilers that, that have arguably the two best players on earth on their roster. Why does a team that's so good underperform? How does that happen? Um, I, I think that teams, uh, and I think people would be shocked to know how many decisions now are being made um, through the use of analytics. Uh, teams have uh, not just one or two people. They have teams of data scientists um, pouring through data and whether they're using outside data companies um, or uh, accumulating their own data and processing it through uh, the team's own proprietary software. Mm -hmm. They are using analytics uh, for every single personnel decision from who to sign, how much money to offer the player, how many years uh, to go on a contract, um, putting lines together, mm -hmm. uh, putting defense pairs together, um, who to put on the power play, what position to put various players on the power play, point, uh, half wall, bumper, and so forth. Um, uh, there's analytics all the way down to the draft class, mm -hmm. uh, where a lot of the drafting right now is based on analytics. I even know teams that run analytics and prepare a detailed analytic report on the uh, officials for a game uh, that day where a report is given to the coaches and the players in the pre-scout meeting that they have uh, to go over uh, various things before a game. Uh, what certain referees tendencies are with respect to what calls they are more likely to make and what infractions they tend to not make. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is, it is dominating literally every single decision. Now, like everything, there's good and there's bad in that. And to me, and it's just my opinion, the one area that you cannot quantify yet, which makes all of analytics um, somewhat limited when you're putting teams together, is character, um, culture, and, and forging an identity. And I think there are a lot of teams that, and I'm not talking about the Edmonton Oilers. I don't want, like, oh, you're saying this about Edmonton. No, this that was my just, example. That was my example. Okay, no, this is just yeah. a generalized observation. There are lots of teams where the analytics on the individual pieces are very strong, but the team lacks a cohesive identity it lacks a culture and those are big words, you know, with big meanings. So 
let me give you an example of what I mean by that. For a team to be successful, players um, invariably need to sacrifice their own individual stats for the good of the team to some extent. Okay. Mm -hmm. We've had lots of teams in the past with players with mind blowing statistics that don't make the playoffs. Right. And it's all about for a team making the playoffs and contending for the cup. And to do that, you need players who play the game the right way. And there are way and, and analytics are not able yet. There isn't anything that anybody has ever showed me. There is nothing. And believe me, I am a huge believer in analytics. I use them. I believe in them. But you have to also recognize their limitations. So um, a player is on the ice and He's coming off the ice and, and it's a, sh- he's, he's helping promulgate short shifts, right? Where guys are not staying yep. out too long and getting gassed, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look and see when goals are scored on in correlation to a shift, goals are scored against more often in the last 15, 20 seconds of a longer shift. Yes. Just makes sense. And, and when they put the, the ticker up on the screen too, like this person's been out for over a minute, let's count how long his shift goes. Right. And you want those guys to get off the ice. Yes. But when guys are focused on their own stats, they tend to, they tend to lengthen out their shifts. That's in their own personal individual stats best interest. And the argument is, hey, I may be in the last year of my contract. I'm going to get what I get, you know, whether I'm fighting for a new contract or how much money I'm going to get in my next contract based on my stats. And you're asking me to give up my individual stats, what's good for me, you know, to play the right way and be part of the team. And there's a group of players who will do that. And there are a group of players who will not do that. And that's just one example of many with Mm -hmm. regard to playing the right way, culture, identity, when a team has a winning culture. And I've been close to teams and players where that team has had a winning culture it's unbelievable to be around the guys. Everything they do off the ice is about winning. They self-discipline each other. They keep each other in line in what they eat and what they drink and what time they go to bed uh, because everyone is locked in and focused only on one thing, winning the next game. I have uh, been around players mid-season already talking amongst each other about playoffs and and getting to the playoffs and what they're going to do in the playoffs. And I'm like, wow, these guys 
for lack of a, a different term, these guys are winners. Mm. They have a winning attitude. They play the game the right way in all respects. And, and those are the players that tend to raise the cup at the end of the year. And there are so many people involved in making hockey decisions right now from general managers that I have great respect for to uh, coaches that are so focused on the numbers and the analytics and the quantitative analysis that they are not focused on recognizing the value certain players bring to a team by way of culture, identity, and playing the right way. Interesting. And, you know, I've, I've sat through some of those. Um, uh, uh, Jesse and I actually had a, uh, the pleasure of sitting and down and talking to one of the analytics companies. And they ran us through some of the tools that they have. And what they have at their disposal is absolutely incredible. Yep. Like it's, it, it's amazing. Um, beyond what anything that anybody can see, like whatever you think you can, you know, on Twitter, it's so much deeper than that, which is important to understand because NHL teams are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this every month. Uh, Milli- to get millions, millions, oh, no, millions, 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 millions. And, and so I, I, um, in bringing that up, you know, the person we were talking to who was very well respected within the analytics community would probably be the first one to tell you that you're absolutely right. This is one of those things that's not like an analytics versus, you know, eye test debate. This is a analytics plus we also have to keep an eye on this stuff. So when you when you see players that consistently win, you've had some of them as your clients, uh, Flower, like, for, for instance, um, and, you know, been at the Stanley Cup more than once, won the Stanley Cup more than once. What are the what are the pieces that. 10, like, is there two or three characteristics where you're like, that guy doesn't matter where you put him, team's going to do better because he's there? Sure. There's, there's, I've known a lot of players like that. Um, if you have a player mm-hmm. that plays the right way, he also has to have, in addition to that, leadership qualities, right? Mm-hmm. It matters if you're on the fourth line. And if you, or if you're one of the um, veteran leaders, part of the leadership core, um, what you find happening is this: when the leaders of the team are playing the right way, everybody follows them and plays that way. Uh, so it matters not just who is playing the right way. Mm-hmm. And being integral to the culture and identity of a team, but it has to be coming from the leadership core because that's who everybody else is going to follow. And, and yeah, so this is the, this is the interesting thing. Cause you know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, you look at great cultures like um, the Edmonton Oilers of the eighties, different era. But they had they had a winning culture. Uh, the New Jersey Devils of the late '90s and early 2000s, the Detroit Red Wings of the late '90s, early two, early 2000s, the Pittsburgh Penguins of the you know 15 years ago, the LA Kings, the Chicago Blackhawks, these these franchises, and the Blackhawks had I I know what everybody thinks when I bring up the Blackhawks. They did win cups. 
but there's some other things associated there too that are not that are not great. Uh, Tampa Bay Lightning more, most recently. When you're building that, when you're putting that together as a fan, what I you know the thing that you want as a fan is to know before your buddies do. Yeah, I think that team has it. When you're looking for it on the ice, you're looking for you're looking for like short shifts. You're looking for buy-in. Can you, Alan? When you watch a team, can you sense it? You know, if you're not around it, can you sense it while watching them on the on screen? Is there a way that you can kind of see it it coming? And if I'm a fan, how can I identify that? That that's a tough question. I, I mean, I I'm not pretending to be some hockey savant. I'm not. Why not? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to go there, uh-huh. but I, I do feel a certain I mean, I've been involved in the game. I played the game. Uh, I've been involved in the game for most of my life, and I do feel a certain instinctiveness um, in uh, talking to players. And, and li- you know, I learned as a trial lawyer to listen very, very carefully to what people say. And um, I think that's always been uh, uh, a strength of mine is my ability to listen. And um, I uh, have seen teams that whether it's from the coaching staff uh, or management, um, there are really good players on the team. Mm-hmm. And people all sit around media and fans and go, huh, why is it this team is so lacking of success on the ice right now? Boy, we thought we were they were going to be so much better than they are right now. And I, I look at them and I watch the games and I talk to some of the players and it's not so much of a mystery to me. Interesting. Interesting. Maybe sometimes that comes out in the press too. Sometimes. Perhaps. Okay. Well, listen, Alan, thank you for the deep dive on the Department of Player Safety because there's a lot of stuff there that I think a lot of people would not know. I hope you have a great holiday and um, excited to get going in 2024. Like this is, we get, we got a whole nother year ahead of us. Lots to talk about. Uh, I know that the all-star game is coming up in Toronto, hoping you'll make an appearance in, in our city. You um, will see me there. We're yes. going to, I'm coming, I'm coming to the studios and we're going to be all over it. We'll do an episode there from the SDPN headquarters and maybe even, um, I'll make an appearance on the, uh, on the SDP, on, on the SDP, uh, show and, uh, I can do a quick hit there sometime, uh, over those couple of days. Well, we may have, may or may not have some live shows happening at some event centers near, nearby. So we're hoping you maybe join us there too. Uh, but only if you've got the time, um, I'm looking forward to 2024 and Alan, thank you for a great 2023. It's been an awesome year. Um, happy holidays to all you guys. Happy holidays to everybody out there. Happy holidays to Jesse. Um, who's sitting there behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. We love you, Jesse. Thanks for everything you do. Thank you, everybody. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy new year. See you all in 2024. This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN. 